Uh, and I'm excited for this because I like to talk about truth. And uh, I hope you do too. That's kind of why we're here, right? <laughs> Is to talk about truth. But this morning, uh, how many of you would say you know the Word of God well? Wow, really? How long have you all been coming to church? Uh, how long have, have you all had a Bible? Not many of you are willing to say, I know the Bible well. Really? Okay. We got to work on that. <laughs> Maybe we need to do some more books of the Bible studies. I don't know. Skip all this topical stuff. Uh, well, these three have boldly decided that they would come up this morning and play a little game of Bible or not Bible, all right? So they're the ones up front, but I, I'm hoping that we can all engage in this this morning. So basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a quote, and I want you to tell me if it's in the Bible or it's not in the Bible, okay? So if we can put our scoreboard up this morning for these, these people. Okay, our first quote this morning yeah, you guys are switched a little bit there. Okay, there we go. Now all the particular people in the room are happy, so myself, myself included. So I thought I got it right when we set up, but I did not. All right, in the Bible or not in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. Not in the Bible. Fawn says no. Ryan, no. Megan, no. How about you guys? Anybody who thinks it's in the Bible? Anybody who thinks not the Bible? Okay, you would be correct. So everybody gets a point on that one. You get, all three of you, y'all, you started off well, okay? Where we go from here, who knows? All right, next quote. This above all, to thine own self be true. Bible or not Bible? Ryan, you're first this time. No, Megan? No, Fawn? Okay, anybody not Bible? Bible, anybody believe this one to be the Bible? All right, one person believes it's in the Bible. This one is not Bible, all right? So you guys are doing good. So you should have been a little bolder with, I know, my, I know the Word of God well, okay? Uh, all right, that was actually a quote from Shakespeare. I forgot, I forgot to tell you. The, the first one was Ben Franklin, uh, the first quote there, to, to God helps those who help, some, who help themselves. All right, Bible or not Bible? Megan, you're first this time. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Bible? Fawn? Not Bible? Ryan? Not Bible. All right, how many Bible? God works in, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Not Bible? Okay, there's like four hands went up this time. Y'all aren't even on stage. Be bold. Bible or not Bible? Bible? Those of you, okay, not Bible, all right, more people on not Bible. That is a hymn by William Cooper. It is not Bible, so Megan does not get the point on that one. We still love you, and my laptop just turned off, so that, that's always helpful. All right, next one. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. Fawn, Bible. Ryan, Bible. Megan, Bible. Okay. Bible, not Bible. Okay, you guys are doing good this morning. That's Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. So you got that one right. All right, all three of our contestants up here, you're doing well. Ryan, you're the first one this round. Find me a woman who can talk to the spirits of the dead. I'll go to her and find out what's going to happen. Bible? All right. Megan? Okay. That must be a different translation of the Bible. Fawn? Fawn? She's not even saying just Bible. She's like, that was Saul. Very confident, Fawn. All right. Bible? Not Bible? Okay, you guys are doing great this morning. That is 1 Samuel 28, 7. You're correct. That is Saul um, saying he wants to go see a medium after he killed them all. Um, so, next quote. Who's first this time? Megan? Yeah, right, right. 
Uh, the best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. Bible or not Bible? Going with not Bible. Fawn? Not Bible. Ryan? All right. Bible? Again, the best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. Bible? Not Bible. Does anybody know who this is? No? Nope. It makes a lot of sense when you understand the quote. It's not Bible. It's Helen Keller, who could not see or hear. So, uh, yes, so that's not Bible. She did. She's an incredible person. I can't even fathom how she did that. I can barely master one. Uh, all right, next, Fawn, you're first. I have been reduced to skin and bones and have escaped death by the skin of my teeth. Okay, Bible and Paul, she's going confident. Ryan, okay, Megan, okay. Bible, not Bible. Okay, you guys are doing pretty good out there. That's actually Job. 1920 okay so that is bible all right ryan next quote i'm starving give me some of that red stuff (laughs) it's going with not bible megan's a not bible fawn's believing it is bible bible not bible okay that is bible and that is Esau, when he comes in from hunting, and he wants some of that red stew. Yes, yes. That, yes, these are not all your, uh, you know, your NIV translations. So, uh. so okay, two more quotes here. Uh, who's first? Megan, this time? All right. Spread love everywhere you go. Let no one ever come to you without leaving happy. Bible or not Bible? Not Bible. Fawn? Not? Ryan says not Bible. Bible? Not Bible? Okay. You're all correct. That is Mother Teresa. All right? So, good one. Okay. Last one. Last attempt. If you've not gotten any correct, some of you haven't raised your hand once. So, this is your opportunity to try to get one right. Uh, Who's for Ryan? Okay, so Fawn. Fawn is, I, I think, who's winning? Ryan. Fawn is winning. Okay. Killing it. Don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seed that you plant. Bible or not Bible? Not Bible. Not Bible. Ryan? Not Bible. Going with not Bible? Okay. Bible? Don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seed that you plant. Not Bible? That is Robert Louis Stevenson. That is not Bible. So you guys did really good. Fawn, you're the winner. You're the big winner this morning. So Wow. Man, he jumped up there. That tech team likes Ryan, I guess, back there. And Fawn's got 9,000. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on stage this morning. <laughs> you guys can go ahead and take a seat. <laughs> you guys can leave the chairs there. That's fine. Yeah, just leave them there. All right. So that's a little bit of a different way to start a sermon this morning. <laughs> but it's fitting for our sermon series this morning, because as you can see, it's labeled true-ish, okay? So uh, if we don't know what the Word says, the whole point of this is to, is to push, uh, make the point, if we don't know what the Word of God says, it makes us vulnerable to the lies of the enemy, okay? And that, hopefully, you know is very true this morning. And um, knowing when something is Bible or not Bible, and I was going to use some really tricky ones. I should have used some trickier ones because you guys are pretty good. Next time, we're getting some, we're, I'm pulling out the big guns, okay? Uh, but uh, I'm glad that we 
seem to know the Bible. How many of you now would say, I know the Word of God pretty well? Okay, good, because I'm using you all next time on stage. Uh, you guys should know by now. Never raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the better we know the Word of God, the better defense we have against the enemy and the lies of the enemy and the schemes of the enemy. John eight forty four says uh, who the enemy is. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is who is the enemy of our soul. This is who wants uh, to see us fail, who wants to pull us away from God. And if we are not clear on what the word of God says, this makes his job so much easier. And so I, I, I guessed when I started this, I thought, man, Fawn's going to be really good. Uh, Fawn, just so you know, uh, I was going to call Zach up this morning, and he was the only competition I could think of, like, man, Zach's going to really give Fawn a run for her money. And I was going to pull out the big guns. Um, but Megan and, and Ryan, you guys know your Bible better than I thought, so fantastic. You guys are pretty good. Um, but the enemy of our soul he wants to rob us of all that God has for us. And he's going to use lies to do that. If we go all the way back, if we rewind all the way back to the beginning of what God has done and what God was doing, how did Satan convince Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit and fall? Did he give them blatant, outright lies? Was it clearly visible that this guy is a liar and he's, he's just trying to manipulate us and this is so far from the truth, this is so easy to see? Of course not. If you know your Bible, you know that's not how Satan works. And yet, that's how we kind of expect him to work in our lives. We think the enemy's going to make it really obvious. We think Satan's going to make it very uh, apparent when he lies to us that it's just going to be so easy to see the lies of Satan in our life and in, in our life and we don't have to be vigilant against that that we'll just it would just be so clearly evident when he does. And yet we look back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. It says the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord had God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? So we acknowledge uh, the enemy comes to them, and he is crafty. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he seeks to manipulate us, to pull us away from God. And, and I'm going to talk, talk about three tactics that he uses when he tries to manipulate us, when he tries to rob us of what God has for us this morning. And tactic number one, as you can see in this verse, Satan first brings into question what God said. He will question, did God really say that? Did God really say you shouldn't? do that sin? Did God really say you have to do this? Did God really say that you shouldn't have sex before you're married? Did God really say that you should actually tithe? Is that a New Testament concept? Did God really say that you should go to church, that you should be involved in, in biblical community? Did God really say that? And he just puts that little bit of doubt tries to put that little bit of doubt in our ear and make and get us to begin to question, did God really say that? Does the Bible really say that? And this morning, I, you saw a few of them, maybe on one or two questions, think like, did God really say that? Is that something that God said in his word? And if you've ever been in one of those, I, in one of those scenarios, you know what's the best way to figure that out. Go to what God said, open up your Bible, begin to dig out what God said in his word. So that's tactic number one. Satan's going to bring into question what God says. Tactic number two, and I have slides for these. I'm just forgetting to put them up. Satan changes what God says ever so slightly. He changes what God says. Uh, if you, in verse, uh, chapter, uh, chapter three, verse one, Satan says, did God really say you must not eat, from the, uh, eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now, did God say they couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden? No, of course that's not what he said. He said what? He said you can eat from all the trees in the garden except one. That's the only one that you can't eat from. And so God 
or Satan first brings in a question, did God really say? But he changes in that just a tiny bit in order to get Eve to question, what did God really say? He said you can't eat from any of these trees. And unfortunately, Eve begins to engage the enemy in this back-and-forth debate. Instead of, uh, I think she does a fairly decent job in what she does, but at this point, there's really, you know, she hasn't read the chapter on uh, spiritual armor, on the armor of God. She doesn't know all of this stuff. Um, and so she doesn't have some of the tools we have against the enemy. Um, she probably doesn't even know just how uh, manipulative he can be. Um, I doubt God has even brought that because they don't know the difference between good and evil at this point. And Eve attempts to quote God in her, in her conversation with Satan. And, and so this is, this is what I would like to point out. When engaging the enemy in his game, because this is what he does, he is the father of lies. And if we're going to engage in that, we should do what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do in the wilderness when Satan tried to tempt him? He spoke truth. That's it. He just spoke truth. He didn't really engage the enemy as much as shut him down with the truth, with truth statements from the Word of God. And yet Eve tries to engage in conversation with the enemy. We see in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3 in Genesis, Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the midst of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, this isn't exactly what God said. She gets it like 98% correct when she quotes God. But God didn't say, if you eat it, you will die. God said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, that might not seem like a big difference in English, but in the language they spoke at that time, that was a big difference. There's a definitive statement as opposed to a future and present statement that God was making, that you will surely die means it's not an, an, an exact moment. So you can see here, now we're, we're trying to get into the mind of Eve. The Bible doesn't give us this exact insight, but I'm making conjecture based off of what I was studying this week, and a lot of people believe Eve maybe thought that the tree was poisonous, that and the second she ate from the tree that she would actually die, it would kill her. Instead of understanding what God said, instead of really listening to understand what God said, because God didn't say, when you eat this, you'll die immediately. And yet that's exactly how Eve quotes God. When the truth was, you will surely die, meaning death will come to you. So I'm trying to put this in English terms that makes more sense as to what God actually said. Basically, God said, if you eat from that tree, eventually you will die. And Eve quotes him to say, well, God said, if I eat that, I'm going to die. And so it's not exactly what God said. So she doesn't combat the enemy with just straight truth, but her interpretation of the truth that God had spoken Eve is exactly right to counter Satan with truth. That's how we battle the enemy, is with truth. But instead of speaking truth, Eve speaks truth-ish. It's mostly true, but not truth itself. And Satan, what does he do? He recognizes an opportunity, and he seizes on it. And verses 4 and 5. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Is what Satan is saying here true? It's true-ish. It is true for the most part, but it's a lie all the same. Even if what he is saying is true, the manipulative goal he's moving toward is a lie. Convincing Eve, you won't die. Will she physically die the moment she eats the fruit? And see, Satan sees this. Uh, he, he acknowledges that Eve thinks this is poisonous. And so I'll speak a truth that's actually a lie. You won't die. Did she die when she ate the fruit? Not physically, but was there a death? Spiritually, yes, she died. And she fell. And Adam, the bum, 
was right there with her and didn't stop her. Uh, and I would consider it more his fault than anybody's. He was supposed to be in charge and he was supposed to be guiding her spiritually and let, you know, just sat back and took a back seat while humanity fell. It wasn't just Eve. But Satan recognizes, man, Eve doesn't know the truth. She knows truth-ish. And he seizes on the opportunity because he recognizes she's not totally clear on what God said. So, tactic number three. Satan uses half-truths to lie. If you don't know this fact, then write it down, circle it, underline it, do something about this because this is the enemy's greatest technique in lying is he uses a little bit of truth, just enough truth that it sounds right, but it's a lie. It's truth-ish. And that's why we're going through this series called True-ish, because of what the enemy does. Does God want us to be happy? Okay, that's true. Uh, I would argue it's false. Uh, I don't believe the enemy, or I don't believe that God wants us to be happy. He commands us to be joyful, but happiness isn't necessarily what he said. But we'll, let's just say it's true. And so we can decide, well, God wants me to be happy. God wants good things for me. We'll say that. That's a, that's a, that's a truth statement. So if God wants good things for me, then if I do something that makes me happy, then that obviously that's a good thing. If it makes me happy. Now we're starting to move away from truth to true-ish. And so if, if it makes me happy to live with my boyfriend or girlfriend before we get married, well, then that's okay because God wants good things for me. He wants me to be happy. If, if it makes me happier to spend my money in this way and not be a good steward of my money, well, that's okay because it makes me happy, makes me feel good. It's good things uh, for me. I, I know I can't actually do what I sp- I'm supposed to be and not be a good steward of my time and my, and, and my finances and things like that, but I'm happy and that's a good thing, right? Now it's true-ish. It's not truth anymore. One of the big lies that Satan's able to convince Eve of at the beginning of, of time here is he convinces Eve that she can have what she wants without the consequences that God warned her about. That's what the enemy does here, and he does it in such a crafty way, and he's, he, he's magnificent at what he does here. Is he, uh, the whole, seemingly, from what Eve says, uh, the reason she doesn't eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is why? Because of the consequences. She's afraid of the consequences. Death. She doesn't know death. No one has experienced death yet, and she doesn't want to, so she stays away from the tree. I think this is also important to note here is uh, she engages with the consequences instead of talking, well, God said not to, and that's it. Boom, done. It should have been the answer. God said not to. I'm walking away. Instead of, well, God said not to because of these consequences. And then what does the enemy do? He says, well, those consequences, they aren't really that bad. They don't actually exist. Don't worry about the consequences. And so Eve believes she can have what she wants without the consequences. And this is the statement I want us to walk away with this morning. What we believe determines how we behave. What we believe determines how we behave. Satan didn't try to change Eve's behavior. He tried to change her beliefs. Her belief that the consequences wouldn't apply to her that the consequences didn't exist. The belief that God, what God said was true-ish, but not truth itself. Verse 6, what do we see happen? The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Eve believed something that was true-ish, and the human race fell. Some of us believe we can have what we want without the consequences. Satan has convinced us the consequences don't apply to you. You're special You're different. It's 2021. Come on. The consequences don't exist anymore. What God said 
about that was true-ish. There's truth in it, but it no longer applies. So the enemy tries to turn around. The the master of true-ish tries to convince us that's who God is, that he is true-ish. Some of us have believed this lie. I know God says to live like this, but I'm, I'm not doing anything too terrible. I'm not living like other people do. I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not stealing from God. I'm not, I'm not doing all these horrible things. So I'm good still. Is Christianity a works-based religion? Is Christianity a, a good versus evil religion where if, if we just do more good than evil, then we get to heaven? And yet the enemy convinces us that's the point. That's the goal. It's to be better than other people, to find people who aren't living as good as you and just base your life off of that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not living exactly how God wants me to, but I, I'm doing better than so-and-so. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands this morning, but if I were to ask you, are you living in the will of God? Are you doing the things that you know God wants you to do? Are you living in a way where every week you can pause for a moment and say, you know what? This week, I lived in the way that I know God wanted me to. Because if you're not, then you're probably convinced that God is true-ish. That as long as we live an ish lifestyle, that we're good. If we live Christian-ish, that's okay. I know God, you know, he's lowered the bar for me. He knows my circumstances. He doesn't require exactly what he said in his word of me. He, he gives me like a special gray area to live in. What God says is black and white. And what we believe determines how we behave. You might be asking, well, what is truth? What, what are we talking about here, this word truth? What is truth? Well, you wouldn't be the first person to ask that question. In John chapter 18, uh, verse 37, in, into the first part of 38, Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. And Pilate responds, what is truth? This is a profound question Pilate asks. I don't know if you've ever read the crucifixion uh, account and noticed this question that Pilate asks. What is truth. I don't know if Pilate was genuine in that. I, I, we know from the scriptures that Pilate was, was legitimately struggling with what was happening. As, as he was investigating Jesus, he was very clearly innocent and a righteous person, and so Pilate really didn't understand what was happening. And so he asks Jesus, what is truth? You might think the answer to this question is something everyone agrees on. Well, truth is obvious. That's easy. It's an easy answer. You would be wrong. If you think everyone in this room agrees of what truth is, we're definitely wrong. See, not everyone agrees there's this thing called absolute truth. You probably have heard this term before, that things are true just because they're true. Uh, and if you don't believe that, we should have a conversation because uh, can there be a round uh, square? That's an absolute truth. There's no way to have a round square. Certain things are just true because they're true. Uh, they're, they're, there's no way around it. There's absolute truth. And I think this is funny because having this conversation with different people, especially somebody who didn't believe at one point I had this conversation, and uh, they were convinced there was no absolute truth. And so we got to the point in the conversation where they were able to say, there is absolutely no absolute truth. And it's like, well, that's kind of a difficult place to be because you just made an absolute statement. <laughs> in order to believe that there is no absolute truth, you have to believe in one absolute and that is that there are no absolutes. So uh, it's a tricky place to be if you don't believe in it. However, if you do believe in absolute truth, you are in the vast minority. If you believe there are moral absolutes, then you are in the vast minority. I don't know if you knew that this morning. That, and, and by vast, I want to explain what I mean. In a study done almost 20 years ago, back in 2002, which is when I graduated high school, a uh, long time ago, when asked if they believe there are moral absolutes 
that are unchanging or that moral truth is relative to the circumstances. So this is, this is the question. Are there moral absolutes or is truth or is, is moral truth relative that uh, it changes based on circumstances? That's the question. When they asked this, again, 20 years ago, how much has our culture changed in 20 years? A lot. Has it gone closer to God? Okay, so you're awake. 64% of adults said that truth is always relative to the person and their situation. Only 22% of adults said moral truth is absolute, meaning unchanging despite your circumstances, that something can be morally absolute. When teenagers were asked, 83% of teens said truth is always relative to the person in their situation. 6% said moral truth is absolute. Do you know who those teenagers are today? They're the people my age. They're the pastors of churches. They're the parents raising the next generation. And if you think they've moved closer to moral absolutes, if you think they've been more convinced that things are absolute, you'd be wrong. That 6% of who are now adults, I would venture to guess, has maybe halved. Maybe 3% would believe there are moral absolutes. That doesn't shock you and worry you. Man, you, gotta, you need to wake up. There are two terms I want to look at to compare against the biblical idea of moral absolutes. Because make no mistake, the Bible, whether you believe it or not, the Bible is very clear. There are moral absolutes. So if you don't believe in moral absolutes, then you have to, you have to come to the conclusion the Bible is flawed, that it is incorrect in its statements that there are moral absolutes. But I want us um, to look at two terms this morning. Because as you engage with people, anybody who is, I would argue, 50 or younger, just acknowledge you're, you're dealing with a probably at least 94 percentile who do not believe there are moral absolutes. So you should know these two terms because they are what most of our culture, most of the people in the world live in one of these two camps. And they're the terms relativism and subjectivism. And I said them without messing up, so I'm pretty proud of myself. Um, the second one is difficult to say. Both of these beliefs claim there is no such thing as absolute truth, but they believe it in a different way. So, relativism versus subjectivism. Relativism believes uh, it is the claim that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture or society, and that there are no universal truths. So they, this relativism camp believes, well, uh, the, the moral truths are based on the culture. They're based on the people. Like, uh, we in America would say, uh, slavery is bad. We would argue that. There are other cultures in the world that still engage in slavery, and they would say, for that culture, it's not evil. It's not wrong for that culture because it's based on culture. That's relativism. Subjectivism is the claim that knowledge is merely subjective and, there ought, and that there is no external or objective truth. So they would say it, it's not based on culture. It's based on the individual. If you think it's wrong, then that's good for you. If you don't think it's wrong, then that's good for you. Whatever you want to, however you view it, that's your viewpoint and Kind of that, you know, you, you are in charge of yourself kind of idea. That's subjectivism. Relativism says the way we perceive morality is shaped by culture and society. Well, you believe that's wrong because of where you grew up. You believe that's okay because of how you grew up. That's what relativism says. Subjectivism would say the way we perceive morality depends on our own mental judgment. That if you perceive something to be wrong, then that's, that's completely within yourself. That's all you. Uh, or if you believe it's okay to do, then that's your viewpoint, and you should just do it then. That's subjectivism. Relativism says morality exists in relation to culture, traditions, and society. So, you, you know, right or wrong, that's just something you learned. Um, they would argue that those of us that have attended church for a long time, that they would say, well, you think that's wrong because you went to church. You think that's wrong because, uh, you know, you stepped foot in a church at one point in your life. 
and that they, to, they told you that it was wrong. Um, and then subjectivism would say morality is, is subjective and personal. Um, so for the subjective person, they would say, how dare you tell me that something's wrong? I'm in charge of myself. I'll tell myself what's right and what's wrong. You see the dangers of both of these camps? One seems to try to actually try to meld the biblical idea and morality together and moral absolutes together, whereas subjectivism just throws it completely out the window and says, do whatever you want. Whatever you do is the right thing. And our culture lives in both of these camps constantly. Our younger people, especially younger populations, they don't even know there's a a third camp for the most part. Very few of them would ever land in moral absolute camp. They live in a true-ish life. Because some of these statements are true-ish. Yes, some of the things that you morally believe are because of the way you grew up. Some of us grew up believing that drinking alcohol is wrong. And I would argue that's, you'll find that nowhere in the Bible. That's not morally true. That's not a moral absolute. But because we as the church uh, saw God's line here and we tried to draw a line back here just like the Pharisees did and try to keep ourselves so far away from sin that we began to confuse moral absolutes and biblical truth with our own truth. And we began to say, dancing is wrong. Going to the movie theater is evil. Um, doing this is evil. I've known churches who said smoking is evil and yet half of the men at the church you know, uh, were, would dip uh, because that was okay. And so they just created all these different truths, and they melded them together with biblical truths. And so there's no wonder why our younger generations don't know what moral absolutes are, because we got away from the Word of God. We began to believe true-ish statements, things that were true-ish, instead of saying, this is what the Word of God says. And I don't like it. It gives me less control to be able to say, you know what? Drinking alcohol is okay. But for some of you, it's not okay. And that's not subjectivism or moralism, that's straight from the Word of God, where the Word of God says, for some, if you believe it's wrong to do, then it's wrong to do it. And if you don't, and the Word of God doesn't say not to do it, then there's freedom there. There's grace in the Word of God. However, we don't abuse God's grace to do whatever we want. We must walk in the Spirit and in truth. The Word of God is very clear on these things, and yet we've created some of our own truths around that and tried to claim what we say is moral absolute. And then as kids age, as they, as they got smarter, as they got more educated, they realized some of the stuff you told me is not in the Bible. And so there must not be moral absolutes. And we kind of led them there. And unless we're willing to say, as a, as a whole, we repent. We repent of putting out true-ish statements and peddling them as truth. Forgive us, and let's get back to the Word of God and get back to what God said. What does this mean for us? Relativism, moralism, all this, all this weird stuff. It means beyond a shadow of a doubt, there are people in this room this morning and people watching who do not believe there are absolutes. And I would argue... A good part of that is our fault, church. We led them there. We led them into a gray area of true-ish and yet made statements of this is truth. And so we have led them to a confused place. And we have like stiff-necked people refused to repent of that mistake and say, this is on us, younger generation, those who don't believe in moral absolutes. Instead of condemning you, instead of pointing our fingers at you and and calling you names and, and, and putting shame on you, let's put that on our shoulders and recognize this is our, we've had some part in this. And we'll take that to the cross and we'll give that to Jesus and we'll turn and welcome those who would argue with us about absolutes. Instead of trying to shame them or make them feel stupid or make them feel not welcome in the church to say, hey, let's, let's sit down, let's have coffee, let's talk about this. Let me hear your perspective on this. And then let's look at the Word of God and maybe see what that says. Some this morning are legitimately asking the question that Pilate did. What is truth? They don't know. They're legitimately confused. 
as to what truth is. They want to know what is truth. Because if you're living in this place of of subjectivism or relativism, then there's nothing to stand on. Everything is sand. There is no rock to stand on. There's nothing absolute to lean on. Everything is moving, shifting, and and there's there's no solid ground there. And so I would believe many would would lean into the, the truth of moral absolutes if we could show them where that is in the Word of God. But if you're asking what is truth, I have the answer. Truth isn't a what, it's a who. John fourteen six very clearly says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. You wonder why the younger generations are really diving into this thing we call universalism where everybody's going to heaven. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter who you worship. It doesn't matter what God you follow. Everybody's gonna wind up in heaven because God is so good and he loves people. Does God love everyone? Truth. Does God want anyone to go to hell? Truth. So everyone's going to heaven. True-ish. That's where they've gotten. They used truth to get to a lie. All the truths that they use to get there are all true except the final statement. And that's where the enemy wins because he's the father of lies. And when he lies, it's consistent with his nature. It is who he is. And if you think you're gonna beat him, you're wrong. If you think that you can sit down at a coffee with somebody or lunch with somebody of a younger generation and you can convince them there are more absolutes, you're wrong. The enemy's better than you. He'll be ahead of you and he gets much more time with that person than you do. However, you lean into the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit speak, he will win. The enemy's got nothing on him. And so when we can lean into truths like this, Jesus very clearly says, there's no way to the Father except through him. That means if you worship Allah, if you worship uh, one of the 4,000 gods in, in Hinduism, you're not going to heaven. That's not Jesus. No matter what anybody tells you, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Many believe this is false. This is a false statement. And what we believe determines how we behave. We've covered that. That's kind of the point of today's sermon. What we believe determines how we behave. We can see that in our culture. If you look at our culture, does it say that we believe in moral absolutes? No, because what we believe determines how we behave. We can follow this backward. Look at how you behave, and it'll show what you believe. If you're living however you want to live, if you're completely disregarding the Word of God, if you're basing your Christianity off of somebody else's and just trying to stay ahead of somebody else and being better than somebody else, then you believe the Bible's true-ish. Do you believe the Bible is true this morning? or true-ish? Well, I can probably look at how you behave and tell you what you believe. Do you, when you find yourself in a place outside of what God says, outside of the truth of God, do you immediately repent and say, I must get right with God because His Word is true? Or do you believe, it's not that bad? Do you engage with the enemy and allow him to speak true-ish statements over you to say, well, you're not killing anybody. You're not hurting anybody. That sin doesn't hurt anybody, so it's okay. Because the point of the Bible is to be a good person, to be, to be morally upright, to be a, a nice individual. And as long as you're achieving that goal, then what you do doesn't really matter. God's not too concerned with the, the minutia of your life. As long as you can pat yourself on the back at the end of the day and, and think you're a good person, that's, that's what God wants for you. That's true-ish. Yeah, God wants you to be upright. He wants you to, to, to be a good person. But more so, He wants you to be righteous. He says, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Perfection is the bar God has set. And He doesn't lower it for anybody, for any circumstances, for, for any reason. The bar is perfection. And God says, This is what you should work toward until you take your last breath and then you step into perfection. There is never a moment or a day where you can just kick back and say, you know what? God's lowered the bar for me because I'm special. 
You might this morning, maybe you're not a churchgoer, you might look at the Christian movement and you determine the Bible must not be true based on the lives of those who follow it. And I wouldn't fault you for that. But I would argue that's the equivalent to going into a gym and upon seeing people who are not in peak physical condition determining, well, exercising must not work. Because I see that person over there and they're not in shape. So this must not work. That's the equivalent to me of, of watching Christians try to live out the Bible and say, well, the Bible must not be true. Because look at all these people. They're so messed up. They're judgmental. They're horrible. That one person I know who says she's a Christian is the meanest person I've ever met in my life. And so the Bible must not be true. And that's a true-ish statement. Because if the Bible was true, if that person believed the Bible was true, they wouldn't be living that way. And that's truth. However, we're messed up people. We're trying to continually work toward God and continually, hopefully, trying to live out what God tells us to live. And so we're not always going to get it right. Man, I know I've been that person for somebody where they said, well, the Bible must not be true because of Bruce, because of the way he's living. And if we're honest, probably each one of us have done that. We've been that person for somebody. The difference is we need to learn how to repent. We need to learn how to say, that's true. I was that person. And God, will you forgive me for being that poor witness, for being that, that reason someone had to be convinced the word of God isn't true. If you believe the statement that Jesus is truth, is in fact false, I want to challenge you to something this morning. If you say you're an open-minded person, if you say that you're, you're willing to, to grow and learn, I challenge you to read the book of John with an open mind and come to your own conclusion on who Jesus is. There's a lot of people who believe Jesus was a good person. He was a good teacher. They don't believe he was God. They don't believe everything he said was true. They believe what he said was true-ish. And I would argue that that, that option doesn't exist. A, a good person wouldn't claim he was God and start a following and tell them to continue what you know, he started if he was a good person and wasn't God. So I've heard, you know, you've probably heard the liar, lunatic, or Lord argument before. Jesus was either a liar, he knew he wasn't God, and was perpetuating a lie. He's a lunatic, he didn't know he was God, but really thought he was, and he wasn't. Or he is truly Lord. The good teacher, the good moral teacher doesn't exist. That's not a, that's not a possibility of who Jesus was. Because he definitely, definitively said he was God, and believed he was God, and told people he was God, and then started a following, and told people to continue this truth, and we, that's why we're here this morning. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the lies that some of us believe. The things we believe to be truth, and we're just true-ish. We're going to dive into this gray area we live in because, see, here's the thing. We live in, we have the Spirit of God within us, which is complete truth, which is complete perfection, which is holiness, and yet it's encased in a body that is not perfection, not holy, not righteous, that we war against our flesh nature and our spirit nature. And so that's why as you look at your bulletin and you see, uh, I don't believe we live in a gray area of truth. I believe we live in this place between heaven and between hell, and God calls us to bring heaven down to earth as it is in heaven. And we're supposed to live a life that is complete truth, but we constantly find ourselves in the middle somewhere. And unless we know the truth, we will live in a grayish existence and not what God wants for us. We will live a true-ish life. We're going to look at these lies over the next few weeks, uh, lies that we believe and some that we want to believe, that we haven't sat down and said, you know what, I know that's a lie. I just haven't ever spoken it because I just wanted to believe it. We're going to look at things that are true-ish. And this is going to be a great invite series. If you know someone who would benefit from this, um, you know I don't often encourage you to invite because most people will say no. Um, but this is one of those series where we're going to talk truth and we're going to talk honesty as we go through this series. And so uh, if you've been waiting to invite a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, I really encourage you, invite them over the next few weeks. Um, we have cards back there on the table and I will strongly encourage you as you leave, grab a couple cards and if somebody hands you something this week, hand them one of those cards. 
and just say, hey, this is the church I attend. I'd love it if you'd join me sometime, but on the back is a website called truelife.org. It uh, answers a lot of life's tough questions. If you ever have questions about faith, you can you know, jump on there. There's a lot of good video answers to that. Very simple, very easy, and you can invite people in and hope that they hear not what is true-ish, but they hear the truth, because that's what we're going to talk about in this series, is we're going to differentiate between true-ish and the truth of God. He is the way, the truth and the life. There's no gray area there. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given us something that is truth, that isn't true-ish, that is truth, and you have preserved it, that though there have been so many attempts to get rid of the word of God, so many attempts to uh, rid the world of your word, it has maintained And though the enemy is peddling lies that what is in it is just true-ish, that it's somewhat accurate but somewhat flawed, and so we we fail to believe it, Lord, I pray you you would illuminate that truth to our minds, that we would see this is your word, and it is true, and that we would rest on solid ground, that we wouldn't try to live in some shaky ground where everything is relative and subjective, but we would acknowledge there is absolute because there is a God. Because you exist, there can be absolutes. And that is the only reason there can be absolutes. Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do in my heart and in our lives through this series, God. And I pray you would uh, impress upon us the importance to invite, to, to engage others and to invite them into what you're doing in this place, God. Because I believe what, you're, what you are doing is incredible. I believe what, what you're accomplishing is powerful, Lord. And I pray that we would invite others into that, that we would uh, take, make the effort to love others and to help them see what is truth. God, I pray blessings over us as we go, that we would live true lives, not true-ish lives this week, and we would speak your truth over us, over ourselves, over our lives, over the situations around us, and we would combat the enemy with the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week.